Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. Good Friday. How can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God, our sin and our debt, overcoming. Jesus. Here is our king, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now, we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. The single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization. We can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. The weak are made strong, the blind can see, the lost are found. We had heard the stories of old, yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken, behold freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing, his plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. 
Heaven watched and saw it all. The naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails. Our sin stopped his heart. And yet, this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. Man, that still moves me every time I see it. We're here to talk about Good Friday today. <clears throat> it's the day that we remember the time that the Lord was crucified on the cross. And last week we began to talk about seven things that Jesus said. He didn't say a lot on the cross, understandably. Uh, every breath was a fight. But he said three things between 9 and noon. He goes on to the cross at 9 a.m. He dies at 3 p.m. Between 9 and noon, he said three things that we talked about last week. And then darkness fell over the land, according to the Gospels. And after that, he only says four more things. And in all honesty, they're all kind of crowded into the last moments or minutes of Jesus' life. We're going to talk about those today. But it seemed interesting to me to ask, okay, what was the darkness? The gospel writers note that there was this uncharacteristic darkness between noon and three. What's significant about that? The sun is at its zenith at what time? Noon to three. It's not necessarily the hottest part of the day, but that's when the sun reaches its apex. So for the sky, for the light to be put out at that time is very uncharacteristic. Now Luke says that it was in the whole land. Matthew says it was in the whole land. They both note that. And the word land, yain in the Greek, is literally can mean earth, the entire earth. It can also mean regional, but 166 times that it's used in the New Testament, it means the whole earth. And that sort of makes sense to me because Jesus was crucified for the sins of all mankind, not just people in Jerusalem. But, but Luke also goes on to say it was the whole land. Olin is the word that he uses in the Greek. Matthew uses a different word, but it has an, an equally even more profound meaning. Pasan in the Greek literally means the full extent. So my opinion is the gospel account says that the whole earth went dark. It doesn't mean that the sun quit shining. It doesn't mean that the sun stood still in the sky, if you want to use that terminology. It just means that the light was compromised. One commentator says this, he says, you know, there are reports from several of the early church fathers, including Tertullian and Origen. If you don't know your church history, those two guys are big. They were early and they were big. 
They were smart, they were scholars, they were theologians, and they note this. They actually are writing people, in, in some cases the, the reports are that they're writing people who aren't Christians, and they're referencing this darkness. So there seems to be at least some historicity to the idea of the darkness. And the question is, okay, what was it? Luke uses the word we use to get our word eclipse. So the question is, was it a solar eclipse? The word that Luke uses literally, though, means to omit or, or to cease. <clears throat> Just that the light was omitted, the light ceased. It, it can be used to, to use the word to fail, in other words. But here's the deal. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse. I don't know how much you know about your Jewish calendar, but Passover, when Jesus was crucified, was on the Passover, coincided always with a full moon. Always. And so you think about that, the relation of the moon to the earth to the sun in a full moon prevents an eclipse from happening. So it wasn't a solar eclipse. Some people have said, okay, perhaps it was a storm. Many of the Jesus movies that I watched growing up use that motif. It, they, they have clouds rolling in and this, this stormy kind of uh, scenario. And, and a lot of times it shows them, I remember one of the, the big Jesus movies, it was pouring rain as they're taking Jesus down off the cross. The problem with that is it's not noted in Scripture. Scripture notes plenty of storms. It never makes a mention of this in any of the gospel accounts. And there's not even testimony by any unbelievers that there was a storm in Jerusalem that day. So I'm going to rule that one out as well. And then some people said, okay, what about it was Satan? Because this was his big moment. This was when he was at, at the peak of his power as he's flinging all of his venom at the Son of God. Did he bring the darkness? Sadly, what we picture in our minds when I say stuff like that is the product of Hollywood, it's a product of fantasy, it's a product of, of fiction and authors who are trying to create this tension. Because the simple fact of the matter is there's only one in the universe who commands nature and it's not Satan. He has no power over the cosmos. He has no power over nature. Let me give you what Job said in Job chapter 9, that God speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. He seals off the light of the stars, and he alone stretches out the heavens. Isaiah takes it a step further. He says, so from the east to the west, the world will know that there is no other God, that I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the one who creates the light and makes the darkness. Ezekiel even takes it to another extreme. He says, when he's writing to Egypt about his judgment on them, he says, when I extinguish you, when I end you, I will cover the heavens, and I will darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light, and the shining lights in the heavens will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land. This was a supernatural darkness that descended on Jerusalem, and I believe the world that day. It was something outside the normal course of events because, as I reference. Noon to three is the zenith of the sun. Now, hang on just a second. You're saying, well, there's no record in history. Our scientists aren't showing us anything about the sun stopping or anything like that. doesn't have to. doesn't have to. The sun can continue to do what it does. The world and the planets and the orbits and, and all the rotations and all of those things can occur as normal. 
all this says is the light failed. The scripture never says the sun didn't come up. In fact, the fact that the, it went from dark or from light to dark at noon indicates the sun did come up. It never says the sun was extinguished, only that there was darkness. That for whatever reason, God caused the light to fail, specifically as Jesus was dying. Now, the question is, okay, why? If God did that, why? Well, it's been suggested through the years that perhaps God did it to hide the shame of Jesus. I don't think so. I mean, God had already allowed his son to be stripped, to be beaten, to be flogged, to have his beard plucked out, to, to literally be made to look so that he wasn't a human being and displayed him publicly. So I don't think it's that. Is it because God just couldn't look at Jesus? I don't think it's that either. Here's what I believe it is. I believe the darkness was the visitation of the first person of the Trinity, the Father, in judgment upon the Son as he bore the sins, as he became the sin bearer for the sins of mankind. Now, before you get too carried away and say, wait, 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 hold on, preacher boy. I read in the Bible that God is a God of light, and you're telling me that he's a God of darkness? I mean, he, he's a God of light, right? Where he is, there's light, right? Yeah. I mean, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, comes down from the Father of lights. Habakkuk, Old Testament says that his radiance is like the sunlight. There's just multitudes of verses about God being light. But there's a lot of verses about God associating and manifesting himself even in darkness. Really? Yeah. Genesis 15. When God comes and appears to Abraham, or Abram as he's called at the time, it says that Abram falls into a deep sleep in a thick and dreadful darkness. The presence of God brings darkness. In Exodus 19, was Moses is about to go up on Mount Sinai and have this conversation with God that we have the Ten Commandments coming from. It says that the Lord descended onto Mount Sinai there in the morning. And there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. So that the visibility of the mountain and on the mountain was virtually obscured. So God does that. But... When you see darkness associated with God many, many times, the most powerful times, it's associated with judgment. And that's why I bring that to the foot of the cross that day. Jesus, our God is associated with darkness when he comes in judgment. Let me give you a couple of instances. You remember in the Old Testament when God is pronouncing judgment upon Egypt and he says to Moses, he says, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Now listen to this. Even a darkness that may be felt, it's thick darkness. And Moses stretched his hand out toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Three hours doesn't seem like a stretch to a God who can do that. 
God uh, apparently made the dark. He, he somehow caused the light of the sun, the light of the stars, the light of the moon to be obliterated. And they lived in darkness. Joel chapter 2, talking about the day of the Lord, says, The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, and the sun and moon grow dark. The God who holds the universe together can certainly cause its light to fail for a short period of time. And that's what happened on that day at the cross. Did you know that from non-Christian sources, the Babylonian Talmud, the Talmud is the writings, the, the collection of the teaching of the rabbis, of the Jewish rabbis, that they recognized the darkness as a judgment of God on the world, usually for an especially bad sin. I would say the cross qualifies for that. Hell is characterized as a place of eternal darkness. A place where God's wrath and God's punishment are played out on those who refuse to believe. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, as an example, he said, The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He makes a similar statement in Matthew 25 and several other places. But then there's this statement that Peter makes. It's a statement we referenced in our study of Jude a couple of weeks ago that God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Remember those angels that fell and became demons. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So I want you to really be well acquainted with this. Because a lot of times people ask the question, okay, wait a minute. All right, let's talk some theology here. Let's talk the doctrine of omnipresence. God can be everywhere. So the question is, is he in hell too? I've heard lots of people debate this issue. My studied opinion is absolutely. He's there in the full fury of his righteous judgment. There is no grace. None of his compassion are there. Only his wrath and his judgment. Over in Revelation 14.10, we see this statement that talking about the people who receive the mark of the beast, they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed with full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who's that? That's Jesus that there in that place, at least in some kind of proximity, there is nothing but the wrath and the judgment poured out on those who have rejected the way of salvation. And so that day on, in Jerusalem on Golgotha, the Lord was not trying to cover Jesus' disgrace. If you're making a note, make this note. He was exposing Jesus completely and fully to his infinite wrath for our sin. And the darkness was not the absence of God, but the holy, terrifying presence of God in judgment against all the sin for all people 
for all time. That's why Peter would write that he himself bore our sin on his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds, quoting Isaiah 53, you are healed. One commentator says this, moved by his perfect justice, God's infinite wrath released an eternity of punishment on the incarnate Son who as an infinite and eternal person absorbed the tortures of hell in a finite span of time. This was the dreadful cup of divine judgment that Jesus had anticipated while sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is intense. It was our sin that did this. This is that time, as Isaiah said, when Jesus was crushed for our iniquity. This is that time, as Paul wrote, that Jesus was made a curse for us. This is that time that he also wrote in 2 Corinthians where he was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but pouring them onto the body of his son on the cross. And so there in the darkness, after several hours, somewhere near three o'clock hour, Jesus cries out in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this intensity, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the Matthew account and the Mark account, they say two different things. The, in, the ending is the same, but they, they use two different things. So the question is, what did he say? Did he say Eli or Eloi? Mark uses the Aramaic, which was Jesus' normal everyday tongue. That's what he spoke. But Matthew, who is writing to Hebrews, to, to Jews, uses the Hebrew terminology, just to be very clear. Either way, what he's saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a direct quote of the Psalms. Psalm 22, by the way, we'll note this again, was as a song about the crucifixion before crucifixion was invented. Hundreds of years before crucifixion became a thing, God was writing about the effects of crucifixion. If you read the 22nd Psalm, it's pretty graphic about what it's talking about. Well, Jesus, in the first verse of that Psalm, quotes it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's another interesting thing. This is the only time recorded in the scriptures, in the gospels, where Jesus refers to the Father as anything but the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Here's what I believe is going on. At that moment, the full weight of all sin for all mankind, for all time, is being absorbed in and on the body of Jesus. It's what Paul would say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, for the only time in eternity, experienced the abandonment of the Father for that moment as all the sin of man mankind was heaped on him. And so the question a lot of people ask is, okay, so during that moment, did he cease to be God? The answer is no, of course not. He never ceased to be the second member of the Trinity. He never ceased to be the Son. He, he never gave up or relinquished the divine nature or essence, even for a moment. 
what you're experiencing, what Jesus is experiencing is something he had never known before. And that was a separation of the communion and the comfort that he had always had with the Father. Because of our sin, that was separated, that was severed there at that moment. And he cries out to God. Jesus had always known this. In fact, in John 17, the night before the crucifixion, he even acknowledged it. I think this is the reason, one of the reasons the Holy Spirit gives us this prayer. Jesus prays that we may be one just as he and the Father are one. As you are in me and I am in you, I have given them the glory that you gave me that we may be one, that they may be one even as we are one. That's what Jesus knew from all eternity. That's what he had known as the second person of the Trinity. And his family had forsaken him. His hometown had forsook him. He had been forsaken by his nation. He had been betrayed by the closest of his friends. And the rest of his friends had scattered and run like scared little girls the night that Jesus was arrested. Jesus had been tempted in the garden, or had been, he had been tempted in the wilderness, he had been tempted in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, all of those times, he had had still the presence of God to strengthen him. In the garden of Gethsemane and, and in the wilderness, God had even sent angels to attend him. Not this time. At the greatest moment of anguish and pain, because of the sin of mankind, that separation once and only in history happens. Jesus had said, you know, when all of those things happen, yet I'm alone. But I'm not alone because the Father's with me, but not now. In the Old Testament, there was this picture. They would bring two rams before the priest. And they would cast lots to determine which one is which, and the lots would fall a certain way. And so the priest would lay his hands on one ram, and this ram became the ram of sacrifice. And they would lead that ram away to be slaughtered, its blood to be used to cover the altar. And then he would lay his hands on the second ram, and that ram would be led away and sent, banished, if you will, to the wilderness. What you see in this statement is both of those pictures. The perfect Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of all mankind. And the perfect Lamb of God sent away as a scapegoat, banished into the wilderness. Jesus is our atonement. His words reveal that. The fifth saying, it reveals him as a human sacrifice. Jesus, after this, knowing that all things had been accomplished, says, I am thirsty. There are several conspiracy theories that came out over the years, over the centuries about Christ. One is that it wasn't really Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. It's something called the twin hypothesis or the substitute hypothesis. That it was just somebody who looked like Jesus. It was a, a clever imposter who died on the cross, or it was a clever imposter who showed himself after uh, the time Jesus supposedly resurrected. Another one was that Jesus didn't actually die physically. Uh, there's a, a theory that Jesus basically passed out. They thought he was dead. They couldn't get a pulse, so they put him in the, the tomb, and in the cool of the tomb, in the, the calm of that time, he kind of revived, which is kind of crazy if you understand the way that they actually buried people. The burial would have killed him if the cross didn't. 
But this saying comes about, I think, to show us that Jesus really was human, that really was a body that was up there, was flesh and bone, flesh and blood that was up there on the cross. Earlier, you remember, Jesus had refused to drink. They tried to give him this drink. It was, it was basically sour wine is what it's called. It was wine and gall and, and uh, water diluted down. Uh, supposedly, it had an analgesic kind of anesthetic effect on you so that it was supposed to help lessen the pain. Uh, but he refused that so that he took the cross completely clear. Nobody could ever say, oh man, he was deluded, he was high, he was, he was drunk or whatever. They could never say that he refused a drink. But now that it's all over, the scripture says, knowing all things had been completed. Here's what I think. I think at that moment, the sun came back out. I think the light was turned back on. Because Jesus knew the atonement is completed. The judgment of God has been hammered out on my body and it's done. It's completed. But it's a reminder that this was a physical body. He got thirsty. It also was a fulfillment of prophecy over in Psalm 22 that I mentioned earlier. Let me just read you a portion of that. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That's a picture of what happens when they drop the cross into the hole. It literally yanks the joints of the shoulders and the arms Sometimes the hips and even the knees out of place. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. The thirst was intense on the cross. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed or encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, that is a direct reference to the cross. In Psalm 69, he actually quotes the event. He said, I'm thirsty and they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's what he's talking about. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. And then there's this. John goes so far as to tell us that they took a hyssop reed and they speared the sponge, got it wet, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. Something interesting to see there. A hyssop reed is only about this long, 18 to 24 inches. And so for them to put a sponge on that and lift that to the lips of Jesus, he wasn't that high off the ground, but he was off the ground. Maybe eight or nine feet at most to the mouth of Jesus. But here's what's interesting about hyssop, and I love that John gives us this. Do you remember the Old Testament Passover? Remember when God told him to take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorpost, and the, the angel of death would pass over? Do you remember what he told them to use? Exodus chapter 12, take a bunch of hyssop. Full circle, we come back around and we see the blood of the lamb smeared on his face and his lips with this hyssop that is lifted up to him. The Passover lamb is there. Another picture from the New Testament about the Old Testament. Now, why is it important that Jesus died? As a, what, what's, why do we need to know this? Let me refer you to Hebrews chapter 10. He tells us, you know, all the Old Testament ritual sacrifice didn't take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. So think about that. Thousands of years of sacrifices really are just shallow pictures, hollow pictures of what this 
was really going to be. Therefore, when Christ came in the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. And verse 10 says, and that will was that we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. What a cool statement. Saying number six, his words reveal him as triumphant. And having received the drink, verse 30, John 19 says, Jesus said, it is finished. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus gave a loud cry. I believe this is that loud cry. And if it is, I want you to see that this didn't come from a place of weakness. Jesus didn't fade away. He wasn't just limping to the finish line, baby. He ran through the tape. He ran all the way through, and from a place of strength, he cried out, It is finished! Tetelestai, one word in the Greek. It wasn't a cry, it wasn't a whimper. It's a word of victory. It's a word that I've done it! Death, you're dead! Hell, you're done! Grave, you're empty! Nothing will stand here! I won! How do you like me now? There's a shout of God's victory over sin. There is a business term for you business people. When a debt was paid, they stamped a word on the document that said, It is finished. Redemption for all mankind. The word predestined from before time ever began. Victory over Satan. Reference in the Garden of Eden where Satan, my follower, will come and he will crush your head. The cup of Gethsemane had been drunk to the dregs. And so Hebrews says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What a cool Cool statement. It is finished. And so the last thing Luke tells us, having said that, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John adds that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and he was dead. Jesus, by the way, is quoting Psalm 31, 5. It's a prayer, if you read Psalm 31, it's a prayer of trust and faith that David wrote to the Lord. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus' life was not taken. But just like he said in John chapter 10, I have the ability to give my life and I have the ability to take it up again. He gave his life. He laid it down. It was a statement that the payment for sin had been accepted. It was a statement that divine fellowship had been restored because now he doesn't say, my God, he says, Father. God has accepted this one-time payment for sin for all time. And it was a mark of acceptance that he could sit with the Father. Over in Revelation 3, 21, there's a statement that, listen, he who overcomes, he gets to sit with me on my throne. Jesus sat down, the writer of Hebrews said, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down. He was done. He was finished. 
And when he himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Seven statements that reveal incredible things about who Jesus was, what he did, and how we can have eternity in heaven. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident of human history. Know that. It was a divine appointment prophesied in the scriptures. And as Isaiah said hundreds of years before it happened, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. So as we wind up today, some insights and applications. I think it's pretty evident what most of them are. But let me just direct our thoughts for a moment. Jesus' words reveal that his act, his behavior, what he did on the cross is the only and sole provision for your atonement. He is your atonement. The question is, is he your atonement? Secondly, a relationship with the Savior is the only life guaranteed to be triumphant over every sin. You got to have a relationship with the Savior, in other words. To overcome all injustice, to overcome every guilt that you accumulate in this world, question is, <clears throat> are you living in that triumph? And the third thing, Jesus' finished work on the cross was divinely accepted. That's the only payment for sin that God will accept. And sinful people are only acceptable to God because they have trusted and received that. So my question to you again is, is that your path? Pray with me. So Heavenly Father, as we come to the end today, Father, as we pause on this Palm Sunday to look forward to the week of the Passion that we're going to commemorate and read about and celebrate, Lord, I pray that we would meditate and really take it in. Father, there are some, the sound of my voice, who know all the information, but they don't have a relationship with you because they've never trusted that that sacrifice on the cross, that finished work of Christ on the cross was the sole and only method that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can have a relationship with you restored. Lord, thank you for these words that resonate in our head and our hearts in these days. Thank you for reversing the curse. Thank you that your death on the cross made that Friday good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.